it's easy to have an opinion. It's hard to have a point of view. So the point of view is more about the embodiment of who you are and the philosophies that you stand for. Welcome to Rep Your Brand, a podcast for B2B marketers who are looking to build their career through a strong personal brand. Rep Your Brand is hosted by Nick Bennett, one of LinkedIn's top voices on field marketing and personal branding. In each episode, Nick captures stories on how to overcome the challenges marketers face with growing their brand. So if you're a marketer looking to open doors and create opportunities that you never thought were possible, then listen in to get tangible tips and strategies to build your very own personal brand. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Rep Your Brand, a podcast for B2B marketers who are looking to build their careers through a strong personal brand. I'm Nick Bennett. This podcast is brought to you by my friends at Motion. They're a done-for-you podcast and service for scrappy marketing teams in B2B tech. The two of the nicest guys around, and the work that they do is truly world-class. You can find them at motionagency.io. And today, I'm super pumped because our guest is Gatano Denardi, head of growth and demand gen at Nextiva is someone that honestly is a must follow on social. Katano, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, Nick, thank you for for having me and thanks for the invite, man. Appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm gonna get into it. And I I think something that you know you're you're not afraid of, of pushing pushing the envelope and getting out there. So I'm gonna open with this. Do you think that you're the most polarizing person in all of B2B marketing? <laughs> One of them, that, 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 that's for sure. And why? I think I don't subscribe to the sort of norms and human constructs that were put in, in place by a lot of tech companies and people and brands and companies in B2B that want to push their narrative in order to... I don't want to say brainwash, but I'm going to say manipulate the market with their brand storytelling. And they, you know, they kind of disguised it as category creation. But for the most part, a lot of it is, is brainwashing. And, you know, wh- why did, where did all this start? Well, it started with serious decisions, demand waterfall, and they basically manipulated the B2B market to, to make you believe you need all these sophisticated tools and products and softwares to be successful. But the reality is, you know, you really don't. Once you scale to a certain point, technology and software makes things easier, but Without foundations and fundamentals, you you really are just giving, you know, blind weaponry to a lot of B2B marketers. And, you know, the result is what you have a, a lot of today, which is a lot of clutter, a lot of spam, a lot of noise, a lot of low value things happening. Um, and, you know, back to am I polarizing? You know, I think I just question a lot of things. I I am practical. I'm one of the few, I think, B2B leaders that stay close to what happens in the front lines. I don't get disconnected and get, you know, um, stuck in Power BI and meetings. You know, I actually am with my team in the trenches with a lot of execution work. And, you know, while strategy is important, nothing pisses me off more than executives to get too detached from the the tactical side. And, you know, it's easy to get into a room and, and put together a big spreadsheet list of things that need to happen. But then when it's like, all right, now, how do we prioritize this and do it? It's like, well, I don't really know that that's the kind of stuff that kind of boils my blood. So back to back to the main point, I am one of the most polarizing people in B2B, but it's not a gimmick. It's not something I do for attention. It's just kind of the way I am. Yeah. No, no, that's honestly awesome. Cause you say a lot of things that like many people are thinking is similar to you. You know, I lead, I lead ABM and field marketing at my current company, but you know, 
the the last thing I want to do is be in meetings all day, every day. And so like, I'm actually in the trenches with the team too, like doing everything. And like those that I was, I was talking to someone like a week or so ago, and they were saying that the CMOs that are ghosts are never going to like be successful. And just, you want people that are actually, people could talk a big game, but if they don't deliver, what's the point of them even being there? Yeah. I mean, with that, I would say it depends on the stage of the company. So there are some CMOs out there who are really good at coming into a company at a certain stage, taking them to a to maybe the next stage and then bouncing. You know what I mean? So if you're a CMO that is really good at taking Series C, Series D companies over the edge, and then once they get there, you leave, you go do a different run somewhere else. You know, that's if that's what you're good at, that's your thing, then do that. If you're someone like me who is better at taking like earlier stage companies, taking them to like a high stage of growth and then leaving before it gets too corporate, <laughs> you know, do that. So my advice on that is like, just figure out what you're good at, what you're passionate about, marry those two things with a company that is at the right stage of growth and that is selling a product, they're providing a service that you believe in, see if you can align with the mission, you know, and the vision of the company that that's always nice. And then stick with that. So like me, I would never go be a VP of marketing at like a highly established public company. It's just you have maintenance mode and then you have growth mode. And then you have like the very beginning building crawling mode of, of companies. And, you know, I tend to fit better in that middle stage, that early to middle stage. So it, back to the CMO thing, like if, you, if you're good at just being a person that's already at an established company, you just jump from logo to logo to logo, you know, great. <laughs> if you're someone like me that likes to build, yeah. then do that, you know? So it, everybody I think is kind of, in their own little niche of what they can do. And like, that's, that's the way I think about it. Yeah, absolutely. And so kind of going, you know, going a little bit past that, you know, you haven't been shy to call people out or things that you don't agree with. And so Justin Wells, she was, he was on a few episodes ago. And so he mentioned it's best to have a strong opinion. Like, why do you feel that having a strong opinion is something that's good to have? Yeah. I don't know if, if I would say opinion, or a strong opinion, because, you know, opinion is just like, hey, here's my opinion, blah, and it's strong, take it or leave it, hot take, (laughs) you know, I think it's actually better to have a point of view on something, take a position on something, and then you, you know, you stay with that point of view and that position, and, and that becomes part of your narrative, it becomes part of your, who you are, and your belief system, your philosophies, you know what I'm saying, so my point of view on certain things is different than an opinion, you know, an opinion is just like, yeah, I feel it's cold today. You you know, that that it's easy to have an opinion. It's hard to have a point of view. So the point of view is more about the embodiment of who you are and the philosophies that you stand for as uh, what was his name? The guy from drawing a blank, the guy who built digital marketer.com Ryan Dice. He he was saying in his presentation about uh, character diamond, that on one side of the diamond, there's a hill that you must be prepared to die on. So what is that hill for you and your personal brand superpower, which then connects back ideally to the company brand superpower, you know, and my hill that I'm prepared to die on is, is really the no fluff, no bullshit hill. So, you know, whether it's you're in a big meeting with a bunch of executives and like, 
the data is being presented in a way that is, you know, a little bit too abstract or meant to make one side look better. I'll be the person that says, yeah, you know, you're only looking at the whole number, but when you break it down by categories of, of lead sizes, you see that close rates at the large line size opportunities plummets. Why is that? I'll be the person to call that out in a meeting, not just say, oh, our overall close rate is this. Well, yeah, it's easy to say that when the small deals close like water, but the big deals are flopping, you know? So it's yeah. it's about just kind of drilling down into it. But anyway, back to opinions versus point of views, it's, it's really about that for me more than just being a strong opinion-minded person because then you're like everyone else on Facebook who just wants to rant and do hot takes. I love it. I love it. So you you lead growth and demand gen at Nextiva. And so you have experiences to draw draw from that can kind of back up your strong point of view. For younger professionals that are kind of just starting to come up in the in the marketing world, how do you know or how do they know it's the right time to express their opinion or point of view? All right. All right. So kind of back to what you were saying at the beginning of this, you know, to really express a strong point of view, you do need to have the street cred to go along with that. The reason why people, you know, resonate to my point of view is because I've done these things, you know, I've been in these real world situations and I've seen the outcomes and I'm only talking about things that I can actually say I've, I've touched or I've you know been a part of. With these other folks out there, it, it's tough because you have thought leaders and influencers like Gary Vee and whatnot telling you, Grant Cardone saying you have to document your process, just start posting, just start getting out there. But if you're so new to where you really don't have anything, to, you, if everybody just starts doing that, then what? SDR. Yeah. I'm on the phone. The the next SDR. Yeah. I'm on the phone. Yeah. Here's what my day has been like. You know, how many of those can you have? It's just not unique anymore. If everybody starts doing the, the Howard Stern talk show, I mean, then there's too many Howard Stern talk shows. So, so, you know, the bottom line is that you have to spend some time actually observing, listening and learning, acquiring skill sets and coming up with a unique story and unique narrative, unique point of view, unique perspective, something that is actually different, but valuable that you can add to the conversation. You don't just want to be the uh, one buried in the sea of many. I hate to go back to this example of Seth Godin, but purple cow, you know, something as basic as purple cow, you driving through the the hillsides of Iowa, you just see a bunch of cows, you know, none of them stand out, but you see a purple one. Oh shit. Right. It's kind of that same concept. It's so simple, but it means so much still to this day. So if you're a newbie, don't just get out there, start making noise. You're going to look stupid, get some results for your company first, document the process of what it was like to, to, you know, go through that. What was the outcome? Put together a little case study on yourself write it up, make it digestible, do a video to go along with it, you know, put something out like that. You know, I changed my cadence from this to this over the last 30 days. And this was the outcome. I tried this kind of advertising creative as compared to this over the last 30 days, you know, and this was the outcome. We ramped up our cost by 50% to see if throwing a lot more money into the ad bucket would drive significantly more outcome. And in fact, it only did this, right? So some kind of thing like that is what you should be doing, not 
bantering or blabbering or whatever. So <laughs> that's my rant on that one. Yeah, no, that, that that that's solid for sure. I mean, for it's it is it's easier too sometimes when you when you have a certain niche. Like for me, like I talk about field marketing. I'm literally the only person on LinkedIn that talks about field marketing. It's just, you know, I've been doing it for almost 10 years, so I have the experience, but like it's just, you know, your platform of millions and millions of people. And like, it's, you, you know, there's field marketers at every, pretty much every B2B company that are out there, but like no one, no one talks about it. So for me, it's, it's allowed me to like build a nice community. It's when people associate field marketing, they associate my name with it. And so like, that's the piece that I've been trying to get to. And like when a lot of younger people ask me, I try to like go down that. But like you said, you know, if you're, if you're trying to do it before you actually have any like wins under your belt, then you're just going to drown in the, in the noise. Yeah. Having a niche is good. You know, that that's why you can separate fast there. You're right. There aren't a lot of people really hitting the field marketing thing super hard. So it's kind of like the, the concept of first, the idea of first there, there's a book called the immutable laws of marketing. It's like one of these really like fundamental books, but there's a concept in there called the law of being first. And so like, if you think about Heineken beer, they were the first international beer to flood the the U.S. market. And so now there's tons of other international beers, but because they were like the first one, they still have the highest or, or one of the highest market shares of international beers among U.S. consumers, right? So now just because you're first doesn't mean you're always going to be first, but you definitely will have that advantage, you know, you being a field marketer, pushing that. Now the next, you know, Joe Blow that comes out trying to do a bunch of field marketing thought leadership might be outshadowed by you. Right. So I like that you you've got a niche going and you could probably use that to your advantage in in the example of field marketing. So so how do you how do you tread the line between being, you know, more slightly abrasive at times but also stay professional? Cuz like I feel like I feel like you definitely tread that line, but you always come out where like I'm not I feel like it's not like in an unprofessional way. So like, I'm interested in that. Okay. Yeah. So there is basically something that I try and keep in mind there as much as I can. And so you have on one side of the spectrum, you have like Trump, you know, and taking politics out of this as much as possible, but like the more people see you, the more you're in the feeds, the more you're observed, the more you're paid attention to kind of the more you're respected in a way. Right. So like what on one side of it, you had like the Trump mentality, which is like what gets repeated gets remembered and what gets remembered gets done. So you have that, you know, be everywhere, be everything, you know, (laughs) it's kind of dominate by shock value and just like be out there and be, be, you know, um, not intentionally trying to like use profanity and vulgarity to generate shock value, which then, you know, results in engagement. So you don't want to do that for engagement manipulation, but on the opposite side of that, you also kind of have this concept of like scarcity being valuable. You have like, hmm, if he's not posting all the time, but the very few things that he or she does post is highly valuable, then you're going to be more desirable. You're, you're more desired when you are not constantly being seen. So there's power, there's, it's powerful to, to understand the balance of like scarcity versus like being out there enough. And I don't have a concrete, hard or fast rule on like how to 
how I do that, but I just start to feel it. I, I start to say, all right, I feel like I've been posting too much lately. I feel like I'm too out there. I feel like I'm too exposed. Let me calm it down a little bit. Then I also go through stretches where I'm like, I feel like I've been too quiet. Let me hit them with a, you know, a heavy hitter. So when it comes to your personal brand, I don't know if I have an exact formula for anybody to follow, but just try and straddle that fine balance of like, don't be too out there because then, you know, you're too noisy, you're too seen, you're too easily accessible. And then there's also this power in being mysterious and also a little bit more vague and um, saying fewer things, but more things of impact. So, you know, you could go the Pep Laya, Chris Walker strategy of like video content every day, Gary V video content every day. But unless you, you get to that level of like true influence, it won't be as impactful if you're saying things every day. So you may just want to scale it down. That's the way I go and think about it. How do I balance being out there as much as I can? But then also like, all right, am I saying too much? Am I being too available? Am I too out there? That's the only advice I really have on it. Yeah, no, that that that's solid. I mean, it clearly works. You get noticed by some of the biggest names in marketing from, you know, the DGs to Chris Lockhead. You know, what's it like when someone like Chris quotes you for something that you said? Oh, man, I love it. I mean, you know, call it negative, call it what you want. But like I I said, you know, category disruption is the most one of the most overrated things in B2B. He changed his description to overrated on LinkedIn. Now, I didn't say he was overrated. I just said category creation is overrated. And it kind of goes back to that thing I said before about, you know, what happens when every SDR in the world wants to have their own cold calling show? It's very similar to that from a brand standpoint. What happens when every brand wants to branch off and do their own individual category and just call it something different? Like this guy I saw on LinkedIn, he said, um, oh, I'm doing category creation because I'm, I'm creating a lane called product-led storytelling. And I was like, that sounds to me a lot like product-led growth which is already a category and already exists and is already dominated by somebody else. (laughs) So what is the difference between product-led storytelling and product-led growth? And the guy just gave me a very just sort of bubbly corporate answer. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that sounds like product-led growth to me. (laughs) So you don't want to be caught holding the bag, looking stupid when, you know, you could, and April Dumford, the the lady who wrote an awesome book on positioning and messaging, and it's, it's being, I think, regarded as one of the Bibles in B2B right now for, for that topic is that most, the overwhelming majority of companies can really just thrive and accelerate if they reposition and differentiate themselves in an existing market. The, the problem a lot of companies have is that you don't need it to create an entire new market or a new lane. You just need to do a better job differentiating yourself in the existing market you are already in that has a ton of demand. Now, there's no hard and fast rule on this because some markets are incredibly commoditized. Like the only thing you're competing on is like price and that's that's really it. I mean, price and brand. But the, pr- the problem with price is you just get whoever's cheapest wins and then that it's a race to the bottom. So if you are in a highly com- commoditized market like the one Nextiva is in, you could potentially thrive by creating your own category. But it's a ton of work to do and you don't want to seem like you're just passing out corporate Kool-Aid. 
So how do you balance that whole thing of like, yeah, should we create our own category versus reposition us, uh, reposition ourselves in an existing category? There's probably people out there who are much better at deciding this than myself. But for me, it's just kind of like a more of a common sense thing and just kind of observing what's happening in the market. How many competitors do we have? How much overlap is there between the stuff we do versus all our direct versus indirect competitors, blah, blah, blah. You know, you can look at all those quadrants and grids on G2 and Gartner and Forrester and so forth. But like there is no hard and fast rule on this one. And, you know, for me, it's just like you don't want to be one of those companies that tries to just differentiate because it's cool and everyone's telling you to create a category and we're just doing this because everyone else is doing it. Because you only have one chance. If you fail, you look you look really stupid. So I don't know if I have much more to add on that one, but that that's basically my rant for that subject. I don't know if you had yeah. No, no, that was that was really good. Honestly, you kind of touched on exactly what I was thinking as well. And I mean, going down that whole path. So it was helpful. So this this is a question I like to ask a lot of different people that come on the show is, you know, who are two to three people that you learn from to be a better leader and marketer? I mean, it could be, it doesn't have to be other marketers, honestly, anyone, but I, I'm always interested to see what people kind of talk about here. Yeah, yeah, dude, you know, I take a lot of inspiration from non, honestly, I don't follow really any like B2B SaaS marketers like uh, there's a company there's a few companies that I really admire who I think have done it like in a great way a great job I think like Ahrefs the SEO software company is one of the few out there that has just built a tremendous organic marketing flywheel you know in terms of like nailing your audience understanding distribution channels fantastic content that's unique and actually is relevant. They went all in on YouTube. I mean, we we do that too at Nextiva. We've we've been growing our YouTube channel quite significantly, going hard in uh, YouTube SEO, trying to supplement the organic growth that we've had on the website along with um, YouTube. So these are these are just like just like some of the things. But I mean, I could I could take this in, in a, probably in a million different directions. But like. In terms of companies I admire who are doing great work, like Ahrefs is one of them. I obviously um, admire, you know, the the early pioneers of like organic f- growth. So like the the HubSpots of the world who have grown their brand tremendously through organic means. I, I I'm hugely impressed by companies that have done that. Even on the B two C side, like the Trip Advisors of the world, any companies who have built these SEO moats, uh, I've always found like really fascinating. And I've studied like a lot of them. And I study a lot of industries that are not the industry I'm in. So I I think some, some companies that have dominated SEO and inbound growth and conversion rate optimization, like to unbelievable levels are companies that are in the VPN space, mm. cybersecurity. So I, I, I look at a lot of those and then in terms of like people, like individual people that I, that I look up to, there, there's a few. Uh, so Eric Sue, he, he's, he's a homie of mine. He's a guy that I think has like done a lot of cool shit in his career. Everything from like growing a SaaS product to growing a SaaS agency to writing a book to being a keynote speaker to running some of the top podcasts out there. I think like he's just a phenomenal person to, to look up to and just admire what they're doing. Um, my boy, Ross Simmons, I love the shit that he does. He's great. Pep Laya, I look up to him as well. I love his stuff. Chris Walker, of course. And then like some 
more mainstream people that I probably pay attention to and follow a lot is uh, I like Ray Dalio. I like a lot of musicians. I love the Salt Bay guy, Nusaret. I think he's a genius, genius marketer. I like Casey Neustadt. So like, you know, just uh, musicians, you know, I get inspiration from all sorts of places, Bruno Mars, rappers who have come up in the game, you know, so like, a broad mix of, I would say, B2C brands, you know, popular influencers on social media, musicians, you know, people who are just doing interesting shit on social that is not like typical, you know, run of the mill shit. I, I, I like people like that. But unfortunately, like in the world we're in, I can't say that there's any one, you know, tech CEO or someone really inspirational there for me. I just don't think that that exists. Yeah, no, I, I hear you for sure. Those are some great examples. So I'm interested, this is more of like a balanced question. So you've got you've got over 27,000 followers on LinkedIn, then you know, a couple thousand on Twitter too. I've definitely seen you lately more on, on Twitter than I have on LinkedIn. I don't know if that was intentional or not. But you know, where do you decide to spend your time between the two? Like how do you balance that? Yeah. So like, you know, with LinkedIn for me, I'm I'm only trying to post once or twice a week just because for one, I don't want to be too visible. That thing I was saying before about there's power and scarcity. So that is something I like to, to keep in mind. And then the other thing about LinkedIn too, is that it actually does become quite a time suck. Like all the comments, you want to somehow engage with those yeah. so that people don't think you're just posting and ignoring them. Yeah. That sucks. And then the more you post, the more DMs you get. So you got to keep up with that. And, you know, I also think about LinkedIn in terms of like big things I want to post, like big concepts, big topics. And then that just dwells in the feed for a while. Right. Yeah. With Twitter, you know, you're just firing off just sort of stream of consciousness thinking. So I use Twitter actually far more for just like if I have a random thought, I'm one of those dudes that my mind is always racing. And yeah. sometimes I just have like interesting thoughts or ideas that I want to like document somewhere. So I just tweet it out. And maybe I'll, I'll remember it like a week later and go back to my Twitter feed and say, oh, what was that thing I tweeted? Oh, yeah, that was a good idea. Boom. So for me, I use Twitter more for like more conversational, you know, connecting with folks like you. It's a good it's a good connection platform, I would say, for also journalists and, and press and PR. So I got Nextiva featured in the NASDAQ. That that opportunity came about through a Twitter connection I had made. And so like, yeah, I use Twitter, you know, for different kinds of networking, the kinds of people that tend to be active on Twitter and not as active on LinkedIn. So I just use the two platforms just kind of differently. I kind of treat LinkedIn more like a business platform, Twitter kind of more like a mix. You know, I'll tweet about shit like, oh, here's what I'm eating today. Or like, I don't know, what playlist do you guys listen to while you work? I don't have, I don't know if I have a good rule for it. I would say Twitter takes a long ass time to build a following on. Like, so the other thing too about Twitter that's unfortunate is that you cannot tweet about many different subject matters at once or, or you can't attach your brand to too many different things because people get lost in it. So If you're about business, you know, Twitter should be, you know, marketing business focus for you and just do growth marketing and that's it. You can't really tweet about growth marketing and like, you know, freaking like power muscle cars or something like that. It's too unrelated. People get turned off and they'll follow you. I wish I could just be who the fuck I want to be on social media and just like tweet about everything, but I'll get unfollowed because I can't tweet about, you know, rappers and you know cuban food too much and then tech because people get pissed and unfollow you so that's i don't know that's the only advice i have man (laughs) no that that was good it's it's funny because like i mean it's so true like i've been trying to like 
I've used Twitter mostly for just like following, but like over the last couple of months, I've started to get like more serious on there. But like, again, if I like stray away from like talking about like marketing, I, I you see like losing people, like I talk about like music. And so sometimes like people will remove me. It's just, it's, it's so interesting how like that whole thing happens. Yeah. So, so, you know, just, I, I have a couple, couple last questions for you. You know, you have a lot of different, and you mentioned this a little bit, you have a lot of different sources of your inspiration for your content, but like, where do you, where do you keep notes? Like, do you have any ideas stored anywhere? Like what's your workflow look like? Yeah. So this would probably surprise most people. The only time I post something is when it actually comes to my mind. So I don't have a content schedule. I don't have a content calendar. I don't have a running ideas list. Occasionally, like I'll like, here's one thing I'll do sometimes. This is doesn't happen a lot, but like for the NASDAQ placement I, I had, that was published on a Friday afternoon. Now, our impulse as marketers is to say, oh, shit, I want to go spread the great news about this. I just got published on NASDAQ. But guess what? On Friday afternoon, three o'clock, everybody's checked out. Sure, I could publish it, but it's, you know, it's going to get peanuts. So I'll just kind of maybe keep that in a browser tab open and knowing all right, I got to promote this NASDAQ piece on Monday. Right. But that's about as as scheduled as I'll get. And I truly feel like that's also why my engagement is high and why people resonate with the shit that I put out is because it's not manufactured. You know, there's see, there's certain people out there, right, who are a little too calculated. They're too scripted. They're too robotic. They're too predictable. They're taking this personal brand thing a little too far. They're taking it a little too seriously. They're trying to, they're trying to monetize how they've built a personal brand by telling you to do what they've done. Unfortunately, what works for one ain't going to work for everybody. You know what I mean? Like you, why is Salt Bay so successful? Obviously the food and product is, is banging, but He's the only person out there that can put the little salt thing on all the steaks, right? You can't go and do that because you're going to look like an idiot. (laughs) So there's too many people out there, I think, taking this personal brand stuff a little too far, telling you how, you know, you should go about doing it just so that they can monetize what what they're trying to do. And, And what ultimately ends up happening is you start to become somebody who has the appearance of doing things in a meticulous way so that you can achieve your end outcome. So you're not building an authentic audience. You're building eyeballs who you want to follow you so that they can buy shit from you someday. And that's the difference between me and a lot of these other people out there. I'm not knocking the ability to monetize your attention. That's a lot of people trying to do that. But I get money by getting results from my company. And any side projects or clients I might work with, and I pref- much prefer it to, to to stay that way. Yeah. I don't want to pay, you know, people who follow me on LinkedIn to have to pay access to the G fan club, <laughs> you know. So that's just kind of, that's just kind of my view on it. So when you have a content s- schedule and calendar for your personal brand, it may work for some people. But I think it's generally negative because you become too obsessed with it. You start thinking, oh, shit, I missed my publishing cadence. Oh, now things are off or whatever. You People just start taking it more seriously than their actual job and their actual responsibility. So, so the closing point on this is that the reason a lot of my shit is the most relatable and it resonates is because 
I only write about stuff that is actually happening when it happens. And I say, oh, this is a relevant thing to, to put out. Not here's my schedule for the next month of content. Let me come up with all these sorts of scenarios. And that's why finally, if you go on that Instagram profile called best of LinkedIn, uh, you will see people being made fun of on there. Now, I don't condone ripping people in a public manner, but a lot of the shit that you do see on that Instagram profile is clearly people making shit up for attention. Clearly. Clearly. So I know I've been ranting on this for a minute, but long story short, be your true authentic self. And just because somebody is out there telling you you can monetize social media attention doesn't necessarily mean that you should be doing that. Love that, man. That's that's. For anyone that's that's listening, definitely make sure that you take that piece right there because that's that's so key. Katano, so you know, we're we're just about at the end here. You know, where where can people go to learn more about you, connect with you, hear about all the amazing things that you and Nextiva are doing? Yeah, man. Thank you. You know, you can uh, follow me on any of the major platforms. So just search me on Google. You'll see it all come up. Gaetano Denardi. You'll see LinkedIn. You'll see Instagram, YouTube. Twitter, you know, wherever you want to connect with your boy, go, go for it. I'll happily uh, engage back. So hit me up. Nice. All right. Awesome. Appreciate you spending some time with us. It was a, uh, it was a pleasure having you on rep your brand. Appreciate it again. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate you, man. Cool. Take care. Thank you for listening to rep your brand. Make sure to subscribe on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you learned something new today, it'd be great if you left us a review. We'll catch you next time.